Well, how do you make sense of life? If you don't know where you're from or where you're going, our lives often lack meaning and purpose. Helplessness, desperation, despair are the consequence. In the Western world, at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, society, our society, the societies in England, Australia, America, largely cut themselves off from God. And therefore, one of the consequences of that was to cut ourselves off from a sense of beginning and also a sense of end. Such that now, in the 21st century, 2018, for many people, the concept of a creator God, for which we might have to give account to, is a totally foreign concept. It's irrelevant at best. For some, it's just ridiculous. And so what are we left with? If we've done away with God, the sense of therefore beginning and end, we're left with a circle. Life becomes a circle. Life is just a life cycle. The circle of life as it's sung. But if we think that there is no such thing as a creator, we also have to concede that we don't have any intended origin or source. All we have if there's no creator is what we have now, is our, exi- is our existence. And if there is no end other than death, then I'm not accountable to anyone for my life. No creator and no judge. Without God, I'm without a beginning or an intended beginning, and I'm without an end, an end for which I will have to give account. I'm lost in this meaningless middle, a circle of life. Well, into this thinking, into this way of thinking, the Apostle Peter here has something to say. Peter says, no, that's not the case. Life isn't just simply a circle. It's not just a cycle of coming and going. No, we have come from somewhere, Peter says, and we are going somewhere. You'll see this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Why don't you open up there? Because what Peter does is he gives us two fixed points in order to live our lives around two, if you like, navigational markers. The first one, as we'll see this afternoon, is for us to look back, back to the cross of Christ where Christ died for us, where our old way of life was dealt with, our old way of sin, evil and death. That's the first navigational mark. The second navigational mark is not one behind us, but is one in front of us. And that is Jesus' coming, his return, and in his return, his justice and his judgment. What Peter's going to do in this section is really give us these two points, these two, if you like, pegs in the ground in order to live our lives around because he's going to centre. He's thinking about what the Christian life is about, what motivates us in it. And we're going to see that what's crucial in the Christian life is for us to look back to the cross and look forward to Jesus' coming and his judgment. Chapter 4 kicks off by connecting us back to what we saw last week. Uh, If you have a look there in chapter 4, verse 1, there's that little word, therefore, it's this signpost that takes us back to chapter 3, to the instructions that we saw last week. You might remember that last week, Peter was talking about this idea of baptism, thinking about Noah 
and how Noah was brought through waters of salvation and us here as Christian people being brought through these waters of salvation. And at the end of chapter 3, verse 21, Peter speaks of a pledge of good conscience towards God. It's interesting that word pledge there is a word that's not a particularly religious word in the first century. It was a word that people used to describe a business relationship. Uh, It was the word that sealed a business deal. And now Peter picks up on this language that occurred, say, within the marketplace, and he picks up on it and intends for a meaning. And this is it. I think this is the question that's behind this chapter. The question is, will you accept Jesus' terms of service? Will you accept the privileges and the obligations? Will you undertake the demands and the responsibilities? Because it is fantastic what Jesus offers in the gospel of salvation. It is wonderful. The promise of hope a sure foundation for our future, forgiveness of sins. But what Peter is going to show us here this afternoon is it's not just that. There is glory and there is salvation. But what he wants to show us that at the same time, at the very same time, there is also suffering. Now for us, we find these things hard to reconcile. How can something be so fantastic as the salvation that Jesus wins for us on the cross? How can that be at the same time combined with suffering? Because everyone wants salvation. Everyone wants forgiveness. Not many of us want suffering. But here Peter takes these two disparate and seemingly opposite concepts and puts them together because this is the Christian gospel. That the way up is down. The way to life is through death. At the end of ourselves, we actually in fact come to the beginning of ourselves. When we face our need, we are filled with God's supply. And the book of 1 Peter, in his mind, Christianity is about the glory that will one day be ours, but it's also about the suffering that we experience. How do those two ideas come together? That's what we're going to see. An English preacher, John Stott, says that the Christian biography is in two volumes. That the day we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection through faith and repentance, that's volume one. And some of us have longer volume ones than others. And this second volume begins on the day that we trust in the Lord Jesus when we take hold of his salvation. That's volume two. And here for Peter's readers is this situation where I think what's occurring is Peter's readers are being tempted to go back to volume one of their lives. Because as we've seen the last couple of weeks, there was a significant issue that was was really the reality in these churches that Peter is writing to. That the Roman Empire, this powerful force, is in fact 
in opposition, is hostile to this small bunch of Christian people scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so what does Peter suggest these Christians do in the face of this opposition to their faith? What's there in verse 1? He says, arm yourself. Now this phrase, arm yourself, is, is a word, a phrase of action because no one just falls into arming themselves. You don't just wake up armed and it's all fantastic. No, what do you do? You arm yourself with what? Well, it's a language of military weaponry. But here Peter's readers have been encouraged to arm themselves with the knowledge that Jesus suffered for them. Arm yourselves with that reality. He's saying in one sense, don't just believe it. Don't just tick it off in your mind as a nice idea. Arm yourselves with that truth. A couple of years ago, my parents got broken into in their house. And so they got this very kind of flash new alarm system for the house. And when we'd stay there and they'd go out, uh, they'd say, look, if you go out, my dad would insist that we arm the alarm before we left the house. Now, the alarm code was my grandma's birthday, and I could never remember my grandma's birthday when she was alive, let alone now, 20 years later. And so I'd go to arm the alarm to walk out the door, and I couldn't remember the code, and we couldn't arm the alarm. Peter's saying the same thing here. He's saying, do not walk out the door of life without arming yourselves with the attitude of the Lord Jesus. Because, it says there in verse 1, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. See, there's nothing in the Bible that says that suffering automatically makes you a person that is stronger, more compassionate, more refined as a Christian. Many of us know and have been around long enough to know that you know, suffering is inevitable. No matter what you do, no matter what decision you make, suffering will come upon you. But there is nothing in the Bible that suggests that suffering automatically refines your faith or grows you as a person. You just have to look at how suffering messes so many people up. You see, suffering will only have a transformative effect if you go into it armed, armed with the attitude of Christ. Is Peter saying here that you'll never sin again? No. I think that's quite clear. Everything in the Bible tells us again and again that anyone who thinks that they do not sin or have stopped sinning is, well, self-deluded. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the way for you to want to have nothing to do with sin, the way for you to stop sinning, the way for you to hate sin, the way for you for sin to lose all its power and its ability and hold over you is to to think about Christ on the cross. Now, it seems so obvious for some of us, but there is no more powerful motivation to avoid sin, to endure temptation and hardship. The incentive to live the Christian life is not fundamentally fear. The incentive to live the Christian life is love. And where is our love displayed? Where is God's love displayed? What's well, in Christ and his suffering? The degree to which Christ suffered is the degree to which God has loved us. 
the degree to which Christ suffered unjustly is the degree to which God has been gracious to us in giving us the exact opposite of what we deserved and giving Christ the opposite of what he deserved. See, as these Christians faced suffering, I wonder if one of their initial reactions would have been something like this. You know what, God? I'm suffering for you. But here, Peter wants to remind them that it may well be that they are suffering for the cause of the gospel in this context and within Roman hostility. But Peter wants to remind them, first of all, Christ has suffered for them. He has suffered for them. And so Peter's readers are faced with a choice. It's not the path of least resistance here. It's not the easy way out. The question for these Christians in the first century is, are they going to go along with the social norms and values that are acceptable in their society, or are they going to be obedient to God and face the consequences of criticism and condemnation in a hostile world? Because what happens? What happens when a person knows this truth? What happens when a person arms himself with this attitude of Christ? Well, have a look there in verse 2, because it says that he or she does not live like the rest of his earthly life or her earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Here what Peter is saying is if Christ has suffered in his body, if he has suffered for me, then it's not what I want, but it's what God wants that is important. Now this is, this is difficult. But here is what Peter is saying. That the Christian person has been given a whole new operating system. The Christian person has a new way of thinking about the world. They live by a different pattern. They march to a different song. And what is it? It's not what they want. It's what God wants. Now this is hard. This is hard because does that sound like a freeing thing? In our world, what Freedom is seen as self-determination. Uh, we want choices in life. Why do we want choices? Because we want to determine what's best for us. But here what Peter is saying is that what is best for us is not what we think is best for us, but in fact what God thinks is best for us. And the Christian person is free to live not in a way that they want to live, but in a way that God wants them to live. Because before Christ, outside the knowledge that he has suffered for you, that he has died for you, we, the Bible says, are a slave to ourselves. We just do what we want to do. And that sounds like freedom, but actually the Bible says, no, that is slavery. And what the world might think is oppression is actually what the Bible calls freedom. Because who knows better how we operate? God or ourselves? Now the Christian gospel says that when you trust in the Lord Jesus, you're actually free. 
you're actually free not to obey your own will, but to obey the will of God. This is a liberating truth. This is the truth of the cross. And when we realise this, this actually gives us a whole alternative in terms of a way of living. Because look who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to first-generation Christian people. And he's writing to probably mostly Christian people who have come from a non-religious background. Some might have been Jews, and it's very likely that there were Jewish Christians in Asia Minor, but it seems uh, most likely, most scholars agree, that most people in these churches have come from Greek background. And when I say Greek, not ethnically Greek, but a Greek way of thinking, a Greco-Roman way of thinking. So it's not particularly religious as compared to Judaism. Because have a look there of some of the lifestyles that these Christians participated in before they became Christian. Verse 3, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. This is how they used to live. This is volume one of their lives. And for many of us, this is volume one of our lives. But the Lord Jesus has come into our lives. He's opened our hearts to see what true freedom is, not to live for ourselves and in indulging ourselves, but to live for the sake of others and for the will of God. Peter speaks here of a change in attitude. Arm yourselves with the knowledge of Christ's suffering and that leads to a different way of living. And Peter, in, we'll see next week in verses 7 to 11, we're going to look at that section there in, verse, in chapter 4, Peter gives a picture of a different lifestyle, one of prayer and not hedonism, one of love and not lust, one of our homes used for hospitality and not orgies. Not that I'm suggesting that many of us here have used our houses for that purpose. I know a couple of our uh, Breakfast Point residents were uh, scandalised to think that uh, I might be suggesting that this morning. <laughs> and service of others rather than that of exploitation. But it is, it is interesting that these are, these are the backgrounds of Christian people's lives, both in the first century and both in the 21st, 21st century. Self-fulfilment is something that's very popular in our world, but the problem with self-fulfilment is so easily with people like us, that is normal human people, self-fulfilment leads to self-indulgence. See, the will of God, knowing the will of God, spiritual desires are not natural and only given because of his spirit. Now, I know many of us have been Christian for a long time. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit now resides in us and empowers us. But I know many of us, and pretty well all of us, I think, struggle to pray. Why? Because it's not natural. What's natural? To do what you want to do. But it's not natural to pray. It's not natural to commit yourselves to a group of people who you can't choose, who comes in the front door. It's not natural to give yourself in a loving obligation with much affection to anyone who comes in to this place. That's not natural. It's not natural to be, want to be used by God for the sake of others. It's natural to want God help you for your own self. But here, 
This is what Peter is calling these Christians to and is what I think he's calling us to. This wonderful new alternative to self-indulgence. And yet, this still has a pull on them. Just because they're Christian people. Why do you think he he warns them there in verse 3? Because they're tempted. Yes, Christian people are tempted, Peter is saying, by orgies, drunkenness, and living life the way they want to live. Why is that the case? I think for two reasons. Firstly, it's because sex, copious amounts of alcohol consumption and doing what you want does have a universal appeal, no matter whether it's the first century or the 21st century. But secondly, and far more importantly, look what happens when you don't participate in the recreational lifestyle of those around you. Verse 4. They think it's strange and they heap abuse on you. Here is something far more powerful than just the attraction of drunkenness. Here's a far stronger pull than a sense of missing out on fun. It's that you don't fit in. And we all want to desperately fit in. From our very first moments of socialisation at school, perhaps even preschool, we want to fit in. To our workplaces, when we come to work, we want to fit in. To the communities for which we retire in, we want to fit in. We want to be accepted by others. And I'm sure there's moments in life where you haven't felt like you've fitted in and this has been a painful thing. We want to fit in. We, want to, we don't want to be thought of as weird. We long to conform. Isn't that so often the case why teenagers get drunk? Often why teenagers get drunk is not necessarily because they like alcohol. They get drunk because of their sense of wanting to conform, of wanting to fit in to the standards and patterns of their peers. And we're just like teenagers. It might not be alcohol or whatever. We're just like teenagers. We want to fit in, be it in our work, be it in our retirement communities. We want to fit in. But Peter is at pains to explain to Christian people that you don't fit in. I think Peter is saying, get this very clear. Because you are now in Christ, you cannot be the same as everyone else. Because at the heart of the Christian person, a transformation has taken part. A change has taken part. Throughout this letter, from the very start, Peter has been encouraging these Christians in the way that they see themselves, to see themselves as as strangers and aliens, to see themselves as people who don't fit in. And our problem is, our problem is that we're not very strange. I mean, who thinks of us? Who do we know that actually thinks of us as strange? I think many of us would know that people think of us as very nice. But how about strange? So we need to come to grips with the radical implications of what it is to trust in the Lord Jesus. If we want the benefits of salvation guaranteed through the blood of the Lord Jesus, 
That is a future glory for us that we take hold of now, but together with that is a suffering. And it's a suffering of being excluded, being on the outside of this world. And really, uh, when in verse 4 they think it's strange and they heap abuse on you, people are just beginning to realise what we have known from the start, that we don't fit in. See, it's so often that in many contexts, our natural impulse is to fit in. But here, we're being encouraged to see the implications of the gospel. We need to ask ourselves, ah, is the gospel going to take root in our lives so, in such a deep way that we are to be different and that that will display itself in our witness? See, too, too often we have this thermostatically controlled faith automatically warming up or cooling down, you know, uh, adjusting to who we're around. But here, here's a challenge for us as Christian people. It's not our conformity that is our witness to the world. It's our lack of conformity. It's our strangeness that provides the opportunity for witness. And finally, the temptation for these Christians that Peter is writing to and for us is to be concerned with the evaluation of others. But Peter wants to remind these Christians that it's not ultimately that people will cast judgment on them, but verse 5, have a look there, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, as people think of us as strange, It is God who will be judging them. It is God who will be evaluating them. And knowing that ultimately we don't have to prove ourselves to anyone is again liberating. George Whitfield knew this. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers of the 18th century. I'm not suggesting many people have heard of it. Anyone heard of George Whitfield? Incredible preacher. Now, in the 18th century in Anglo and uh, in, in America and England, uh, he was a celebrity. Uh, I know it's hard for us to understand that a, a very famous preacher would have been a celebrity, but that's how it worked back then. And he was a man that commanded thousands of people. They wanted to come and hear him preach. Here, when he preached, thousands of people committed themselves to Christ. He was famous in America. They pleaded with him for years to come and preach to them. He was famous in England. They wanted him everywhere, all over the place. But in the last five or so years of his life, after his fame and popularity, he was marginalised and criticised. But he knew that there was no person to which he needed to give account. His friends were worried, worried for his reputation. They wrote to him and they said to him, George, you've got to, you've got to say something. You've got to fix the record up. You don't want to be remembered in this way after all this success. And he writes this to them. He says, I am content to wait to the judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. So he knew that there was a judgment day. 
He didn't need to prove himself to other people. He didn't need to justify himself. He knew that God would take care of that. See, our society is fractured. And I think one of the key reasons why it's fractured is because we've done away with God. And we think that in doing away with God, we've done away with judgment, but we haven't. We've replaced God as judge with who? One another as judge. Who do you want judging you? The suffering Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who judges with fairness and equity and who offers forgiveness. Or do you want human people judging you? Knowing that Jesus is the judge of all humanity, knowing that he will put all things right, means that we can get on with not living for ourselves and our sense of our reputation or justifying ourselves, but we can live again for the will of God. And so to close, Peter gives us these two navigational markers. The cross of the Lord Jesus, his suffering for us in the past. The future of Jesus' judgment and his justice that he will bring. And so you know what that means? Our lives aren't meaningless circles. We know where we've come from. We've come from the cross of the Lord Jesus where we've been loved and forgiven. We know where we're going, that Jesus will come and return and bring his justice. And so we've got great encouragement here this afternoon to look back, look back to the cross, look back at his suffering and his love for us and look forward to his return and his justice that will be given to us. And so Peter encourages these Christians in the first century and I want to encourage us this afternoon to arm ourselves with this such that we might live not for ourselves and what we want but for the will of God and for the sake of others. Amen.